And for this evening, I don't know why, but I don't usually, as you know, choose talks. But then, just as I closed my eyes and uh, started coming out of the meditation, I thought I haven't talked about this subject for a while. And this is one of the subjects I was always interested in as a young man and also a monk. And that is Buddhism and ghosts and spirits. Can you please turn the lights down and close the door? <laughs> no, it's okay. The reason I do this is not just for entertainment, but also to get some more understanding about how life actually works. And the uh, reason I say this, I was always interested in this, was you know, I always had a mind which wanted to find out about the truth of things, and especially the natural world. And that's one of the reasons I love science. And I wanted to have a path of spirituality which actually allowed me to investigate and find out the truth of things. But I wasn't really that scared. So that courage I had as a young man, you know, that finding out the truth was really important, carried me into doing sort of experiments in not just theoretical physics, but also one of the other clubs which I joined as an 18-year-old was the Cambridge Society for Psychic Research. And one of the reasons I did that, I think I mentioned to many people, that when I was uh, young, there was a story in my family which was always very weird. And I checked it out many times from my mother and from my aunt. My mother, they weren't really aunts, they were like cousins, because their mother's my grandmother and uh, this other lady's grandmother, they were sisters and they grew up almost like sisters. This is my mother and who we always called Auntie Opal. And these two would always you know, go around together, play together when they were young and eventually when they got to that age of young women when they were looking for partners in life, they would go to dances and parties and at this particular time, they didn't have anything to go to that night, so they went to some of these mediums. And this medium told my auntie, her name was Opal, maybe she was about 18 or 19, and they said to her, you are soon to meet the love of your life and marry him. Has anyone ever said that to you? She didn't believe a word of it. But then, this medium also told her his name is Donald. That's a usual name. Surname, Wolfries. That's not common at all, Wolfries. And of course they dismissed this as rubbish. The lady's crazy. But a week or two later, she went to a dance with my mother, this Opal and my mum, and this nice young man came up to my auntie Opal 
So would like to dance? Yes. What's your name? My name's Opal. What's your name? Donald. <laughs> Surname Wolfries. They were married for 60 years. You know, and I kept on asking, my, I wasn't there obviously when they met and they got married. I was you know, st still just a, a glint in my father's eye, as I said. But anyway, they had a long happy marriage together. And I kept on asking, did that actually happen, Mum? Yeah, I was there. Really? Yes. And it's stuff like that, you know, makes me really interested in some of the bigger truths of this world. Things which people say, oh, that's craziness. But when that's in your own family, and you can ask your mother, and interestingly, uh, my auntie Opal, she's 90-something now, still alive. And really quite actually clear for a 90-year-old. But anyway, that was real, it happened. How on earth can that happen? Anyhow, it starts to make you more interesting, interested in some of these experiences in life which really don't have much logical explanation but when you see it happen and it's there, it's real of course you have to accept it, it's part of life. So when I went to university and I joined many clubs and one of the clubs I joined was the Buddhist Society, as many of you know but I also joined the Cambridge Society for Psychic Research and this wasn't a, just a bunch of crazy hoons because one of the people who was in that society became a lifelong friend and I often mention him to you that was Professor Bernard Carr he wasn't a professor at the time but you know, he was only about one or two years older than me we became close friends he was also a Buddhist and he was also a theoretical physicist and I never knew for many years until I met him again uh, about five or ten years ago how close he was to Professor Stephen Hawkins you know, the famous physicist he was one of the inner circle so much so that when they did a movie about Professor Stephen Hawkins you know the famous physicist he was the guy who sort of discovered the Big Bang Theory and when they did a movie about Stephen Hawkins one of the characters in that movie was was Bernard he was featured in the movie and so I remember talking with him with great relish he said is the only time that he went down a red carpet on the premiere of that movie in Leicester Square in the middle of London have you ever been on the red carpet? Well, actually we do have red carpets to do meditation on at Jana Grove Retreat Centre this was like a real red carpet so the reason I say this because these aren't crazy people they're investigating some of these weird phenomena which some of you hear about is it true or not? don't you want to know what happens to you when you die? and so because of that there's all these lovely stories this is from Perth from Bodhinyana Monastery or from BSWA you know that some years ago there was a 
Thai lady who married to a Chinese man. Many of you may remember her. Her name, I don't mind saying this, Poon Sup Wong. Her husband was called George. And Poon Sup, she was a Thai lady, but always, she was always very sick. So much so that, you know, she, once she asked me, can you make me some holy water, you know, this Nam Mon, which you know, sometimes you sprinkle people with. I said, yeah, sure. He said, no, not a little bit. Can you make me buy the bucket? You know, like 11 litre buckets, plastic buckets. So once a week, I'd make her a whole bucket of holy water. I thought she was very sick. I'm a very kind monk. <laughs> if that's what you want, that's what I'll give you. <laughs> and for weeks she was having this, holy water, by the bucket load. And then I found out what she was up to. Because I got a telephone call about in Yana Monastery from a Chinese gentleman. He said, I want to purchase some of your holy water. I said, we don't purchase it, we give it away for free. This is like monks, we're not business people. He said, no, 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 you sell it. I said, I don't, it's really good. I said, I don't sell it. <laughs> and then something started to click in my mind. What are you talking about? He said, I get mine from Mrs. Poon Sup Wong. I want to cut out the middle man or middle woman <laughs> and get it direct from source, cheap. <laughs> I found out what she was up to. The bucket of holy water, 11 litres, she was taking it home and just <laughs> dividing it up and then setting it, setting it on. She had a nice little earner there. <laughs> so as soon as I told her that was the end of that game. Because I give the things away for free. But anyway, it was the same woman that later on, she was really sick. And so she came up to me one day and said, look, you know, I'm going to die soon. But she said, I do not trust my husband, George. I know some of you know relationships, sometimes you don't trust each other, sometimes you do. But she really did not trust George, he's stupid, she kept on saying. So, she said, I want to make a deal with the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. The deal is this, if you, Ajahn Brahm, promise to do my funeral service for me, because I'm going to die soon, and pay for it, then I will put half of my assets, she had a little unit in Maylands, half my assets for the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. And straight away I said, I can't do that, I don't do deals. But what I can do, I said, out of kindness to you, I'll tell our committee. And the committee looked at the paperwork, it was a, a good deal. Funerals don't cost that much at that time, and we'd actually make a bit of money out of this. So the committee resolved, yes, we'll accept this. So eventually she did pass away, and I did a funeral service for her. And we paid for it. But after we paid for it, we don't go around just harassing people. Come on, pay up, we've done our half of the bargain. Poor old George, he'd lost his wife. So we just left it, and then when I did see him, I asked him, he said, have you found the, the will? He said, no, I can't find it, I don't know where it's gone. Oh, never mind. 
because that's as Buddhists we don't really worry too much. But then what happened next? As many of you know, I've heard the story before. Early one morning, maybe just after breakfast, seven o'clock or something, a, <laughs> a, a taxi came into Bodhinyana Monastery. Now Bodhinyana is serpentine and mainland, it's a, quite a distance away. A taxi came and George was in that taxi. And he said, where's Ajahn Brahm? He said, here I am. He said, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahm, here's the will, take it now, quick. <laughs> and he was really terrified, he was scared. And I said, oh, you found the will? He said, yeah, 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 I found it. I knew where it was all the time. <laughs> but that night before, in the middle of the night, the ghost of his wife came. George! George! <laughs> get that will to Ajahn Brahm as soon as possible. <laughs> and that poor man was so terrified. I've never seen, I think, any member of our Buddhist society so scared ever in my life. And he paid a lot of money to get a taxi all the way from Maylands to Serpentine that early in the morning. <laughs> so be very careful. If you promise Buddhist monks anything, <laughs> and if you don't <laughs> go through, the goals will come. Well, that was, to me, it's a bit funny, but not for poor George. He was terrified. But that's actually sometimes what happens. That's one of the reasons why, at the end of a person's life, what's it like to die? What goes on in the, the body and the mind when you die? Now as Buddhists, we don't need to believe in stuff because what we do when we, we meditate, if any of you ever get into some of these deep meditations, it's like learning what it's like to die. You're still alive, you're safe. But what happens, what's the definition of death? All your body just stops. It gets really, really peaceful. And the sight turns off, hearing turns off, sort of smell, taste, and physical touch turns off. I remember reading an article about this. How do doctors find out that someone is really dead? You think they could actually you know, take the pulse or do something with electronic gadgets, but sometimes they just open the eye and shine a flashlight in it to see if that's happening, or they're just, just shouting the ear hole see if they're still alive. Because you know that sometimes they get it wrong. <laughs> now I, I've told a story before, this comes from uh, one of the monks, he's currently visiting his family over in India, that's Venerable Bhutto. He said this happened in his village and that was the case where he was uh, from a family of Sikh people and all the men have the surname, in that village anyway, Singh and all the ladies have the same surname, Kaur. So when they always have the same surnames, sometimes they will have the same first name as well. And this was a problem because this old lady died in his village 
And once she died, they, they checked her out. This was you know, a very you know, well-off community, proper doctors, certified dead. They put her in the coffin, and in that religion they would do the cremation that evening. They wouldn't wait around so long. So they had her in the coffin waiting for the cremation, and then she came to. She wasn't dead. I remember telling the story a couple of days ago, and one of the Thai ladies who comes every Tuesday to Bodhinyana Monastery, she, had, she experienced something similar to that in her village. There's an old lady died, and they had her in her coffin, and the monks were there ready to do the cremation, and then <laughs> she was knocking in her coffin. It's a true story. Knocking in the coffee, <laughs> and apparently the first to jump away were the monks who were there when you did the chanting. <laughs> they were not that impressive at all. <laughs> and then most of the other people ran away quickly because they were terribly scared. But then they opened the coffin and she was still alive. But anyway, this in the village in India, when she came to, you know, she was still alive, and they asked her what happened. And what she said, this is how she described that experience, a near-death experience, was she was met by two spirits or something, dragged away, and then this big boss spirit took one look at her and scolded the other spirits. You've got the wrong Mrs. Kaur! <laughs> take, her, take her back! Because they've all got the same surnames, and the same first names. So they had to drag her back. And that's when she woke up. And a few minutes later, another Mrs. Kaur died in the village. <laughs> this time they got, the, <laughs> they got the right one. So I'm always a bit scared about that. Because in Bodhinyana Monastery, we've got Ajahn Brahmali, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll get the wrong one. <laughs> but anyway, how do, we <laughs> how do we know what happens when a person dies? When you have a nice meditation, your whole five senses stops. And there's been cases like that. One of those cases, I usually only talk about this on retreats, but it does happen. They get so peaceful, this guy, his name was Greg, I haven't seen him for a while, but he was just meditating at home on a Sunday afternoon. When he was meditating at home, you know, he'd only usually meditate for half an hour, 40 minutes, but after one hour he still hadn't come out of his bedroom, so his wife went to check on him. And when she went to check on him, he was sitting perfectly still. I really mean, perfectly still. He wasn't breathing. So his wife called 000. He wasn't that far away from Charlie Gardner's hospital. So the ambulance came really quickly. I don't know if I do sirens well, but anyway, with sirens waiting, and the medics rushed in to the bedroom, took his pulse, no pulse, no breathing. 
he was dead. So they put him in the back of the ambulance. Da, 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 da. <laughs> to the emergency department at Charles Gardner Hospital. And they put him on the, the stretch or the bed, or whatever. He was really fortunate that on that day, the doctor on duty was of Indian extraction. His parents had migrated from some part of India, and so he'd heard his parents talk about some Indian yogis who can go into suspended animation for sometimes long periods of time. And they found out that this man, Greg, had been meditating beforehand. And the one strange feature about his body, which was different than dead people, his body was still warm. But there was no sign of brain activity. They put EEG on, it was flat. ECG was flat. Normally they would take people straight down to the morgue. It was very lucky they didn't take him straight down to the morgue. Because if they did, when he came out of his meditation, he would have probably given a heart attack to the morgue attendants. He wasn't dead. And at that time, according to what he told me, his wife had been there all the time, they used to put on defibrillators, like electric shocks, to try and get his heart going again. Apparently these days they put in, uh, they inject, what's it called? Adrenaline or something. Anyway, many times they put the shocks on because he thought maybe he wasn't really dead yet. Many times I did that and eventually he just decided to come out of the meditation. He opened his eyes, beep, 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 everything was perfect. When the doctor gave him a thorough examination and after that examination could find nothing wrong with him, he's perfectly healthy. So they sent him home. He actually walked home with his wife. And I remember asking him, what was going on all that time? He was just so blissed out inside, really, really happy, just with his perfectly aware, but just of the mind. He couldn't feel his body at all, couldn't hear any sounds, couldn't feel electric shocks at all. So was there anything unpleasant about it at all? He said, oh yes. What was unpleasant was the scolding he got from his wife on the way home. Don't you ever do that again. <laughs> now the reason I tell stories like that, they're unusual stories. But they're true. This is what happens when a person does actually die. Just the body just kind of stops but the mind continues on. And that's the interesting part of the story, that you realize that you're not just your body, you're much bigger than that. There's more to you than just these five senses. Sometimes you keep saying stories like that, but it's the only thing which makes sense. And I say that as a theoretical physicist. You see such things. Which is why what happens when a person passes away they don't disappear straight away. Sometimes they're still there for a while. And sometimes it's amazing to see just some of the stuff they can get up to. 
know, in that uh, the Cambridge Psychic Research Society and eventually the London Psychic Research Society, you've all heard about how many ghosts they sometimes report in a country like England. But anyway, they do all the investigations about them to try and find out are they real, are they false. And I remember one of the guys I knew in that society, you can actually get him on uh, the internet if you want, Dr. Tony Cornell. He was a, another good friend of ours. And I remember he would give this, this uh, business card which was a beautiful business card to have. It was legitimate. The head ghost hunter of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And I remember sometimes, if there's any ghost stories in the Sunday newspapers, he'd be the one who wrote it. It was real. He was a real ghost hunter. But one of the things he'd always say, he'd always go to these supposedly hauntings with a professional music, a professional magician. Because magicians just knew how you could deceive people. And he wanted to make sure that what he actually saw was real. And many times there were real occurrences of like hauntings. But first thing, that no ghost has ever, in all of the history of hauntings in UK, no real story of a ghost has ever hurt a human being. And he told me that sometimes in some of these rooms the things were flying all over the place and crashing into the wall. But they would never crash into a human. They would always miss you. Always. And that's over a hundred years of research. So first of all, there's no need to feel afraid. If, you hear anything which is a little bit strange. Instead, always remember, this is in the Buddhist um, cosmology, that ghosts exist, but you as a human being have more power than the ghosts. You're in a higher realm, human beings. You know, in the hierarchies of different beings which exist in this universe, Human beings are supposed to be higher than the animals. Animals higher than the ghosts. So you don't have to be afraid. There's one of the ex-monks who's still alive and still supports uh, our Buddhist society. He told me once that he was in one monastery, which was a cremation ground over in Thailand. And it's supposed to be notorious for ghosts. And he was meditating there one day. And you know what it's like when you meditate, sometimes you get tired. So he had his legs stretched out, leaning against the wall. And he felt somebody pull his leg. I mean, I mean a joke, it actually tug it. And he thought, oh, this must be like a good spirit trying to make him be more diligent. But that was only the start of this being coming into his hut. Because the being would start to come in 
and he would notice it coming in because it had a very bad smell. And he soon realized it was one of the ghosts. And it would always um, tease him or just try and irritate him. But the way he overcame that, and this is why I tell the story, any one of you who have any problems with ghosts, the way he overcame that was one day he put another cushion next to him. When the ghost came in, he said, you can come in, but you sit down and meditate like me or get out of here. He scolded the ghost. And because he scolded the ghost, that was the last time the ghost came in. And that leads me, that's so if any of you ever have any problem, you can either give loving kindness to the ghost and send it off to a nice beautiful place, or you just scold if it causes you any problem. You have the authority to do that. So anyway, I was, from the time I was young and was in that society, I was always interested in ghosts. So I had my great chance when I was only just five years as a monk and had the opportunity to go walking through Thailand with everything I owned on my back, sleeping out, going to any sort of village for arms round in the morning, getting enough to eat, maybe just some rice, but nothing. But I was you know, well fed. And I stayed in a monastery. It was a Wat Tumsi girl. And it was at that time Ajahn Suwat was the abbot of that monastery. It was quite a well-known monastery. I went there for the, the full moon day. And afterwards, it was time to go. I had a resolution I would walk. I wouldn't take any lifts to go anywhere. And I asked the head monk, is there any nice caves on my journey halfway between where I was and going to the town of Sakonakon? He said, yes, there is a cave, but be careful. Because he said there was a ghost in that cave and some monks had gone mad staying in that cave too long. And then this was a senior monk told me this. And so I had no doubt he was telling the truth. So I said, yes, <laughs> I'm going to meet a ghost the next night told to me by a very senior Thai monk. I just said, what, Tamsi Gil? So I managed to find that cave and it was a spooky cave. The, one of the villagers took me to the cave. There was a beautiful spring outside, lovely water. And inside the cave there was an old bench which you could uh, lay down on. And there was a very, very, very old Buddha statue there. And the villager told me that deeper in the cave there was a skeleton a human skeleton. And then it was getting dark, so the villager didn't explain much more. He went back to his, his house and left me there in this spooky cave with a skeleton and a reputation of a ghost who drove monks mad in the dark all night.
<laughs> and I was really excited. Okay, come on, ghost. <laughs> so I meditated there and meditated and meditated and meditated. No ghost came. That's really disappointing. I was expecting the ghost. It never came. So maybe about 10 o'clock or something at night, I've been walking all day, I lay down. It's in the dark, pitch black. And as soon as I lay down, something ran towards me. It was a ghost. It came to see me. You know what I replied? I said, I've been waiting for you for hours and now you decide to come, get out. And that was the end of the ghost. I chased it away. I think ghosts should be more respectful to monks and be more polite. I've been waiting for you and now you come and I just want to go to sleep. Get out of here. That's a true story. So that was the end of that ghost. <laughs> but anyway, these things do exist, we don't feel afraid. And sometimes, some of these ghosts, all you really need to do that, if ever you know how the mind works, sometimes, if you can change the attitude of a mind to being kind and gentle and positive, if you can try and make even the ghost remember some of the beautiful things it's done in its life, it can change the whole experience for a, for a ghost. A lot of these realms, in Buddhism we call them mind-made realms. These beings who have died, they go into these realms and they make them according to what they feel they need. And if you can just give a little bit more kindness and even joy to them, remember that, remind them of some of the beautiful things they've done in their life. That much is enough to make the mind so bright they cannot remain in those lower realms. They get reborn pretty quickly into a higher realm. That's one of the reasons why, as monks, we are asked to do ghost bustings. We're not really busting the ghost. We're just trying to give them some joy, some happiness, remembering good things, so they don't have to stay in that state. But the problem is, I've done many ghost bustings in my life, but one of the most interesting ones was not one of the ones which I did, but one which Dr. K. Damananda in Malaysia did and told me about. Just This was in Kuala Lumpur, and very close to his temple, there was a house which had a notorious ghost in it and they tried many ways to get rid of the ghost, it, nothing was working. So they asked him to go there. And he was a good monk, he did the chanting there and the ghost left. Departed the house, it worked, sort of. But a couple of days later, the neighbours came to complain. The ghost had just moved next door. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, 
he had to go doing some chanting in all the houses in the street, every one of them. So that goes, couldn't just move next door, I had to leave the whole neighborhood. But anyway, <laughs> sometimes it can work that way. Sometimes all one needs to do is to share some merits. In other words, all the good karma you've done to give it to the ghost and let them feel good about themselves. Just the same I do to each one of you who come here. Sometimes, no matter what you've done in your life, say, look at all the other good things you've done in your life. That's what you do to people who are in prison, which I've done so many times. They may, <laughs> I was saying, saying this earlier, if you were over here in a conversation I had with some visitors, that you know even the the two bad bricks and the wall story. You don't focus on the two bad bricks. You focus on all the other good bricks. Do you all know that story, I hope? Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you don't know, it's in Opening the Door of Your Heart. I think it's the first story in there, I think. So anyway, it's a good story. But anyway, apparently in Carnet Prison Farm, the other monks go there and tell me what goes on there. There was one prisoner in that prison who'd read that book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, Two Bad Bricks, don't just focus on the two bad bricks. Remember all the other beautiful bricks you've laid in your life. And apparently he was in Karna Prison Farm at the end of a long sentence for a murder, actually two murders. And he was going around telling everybody it was only two murders, two bad bricks. <laughs> He's not a murderer, <laughs> it's just two murders. And actually I thought, well done. You made two terrible, terrible mistakes and you've been in jail for it. That doesn't make you a murderer. He would leave that prison and he would be a normal human being again. Learned his lesson not to do it ever again. Why not? I know many people have been in jail. Kept in contact with them. And they're wonderful people now being really good people because they don't look at themselves as a thief or a rapist or a, a murderer ever again. It's just a stupid thing they did when they were young, mostly because of drugs, intoxication, something like that. But nevertheless, they realize that we do make mistakes. We may be in our own mind-made world and just by having somebody who can inspire you, you can do much better in your life. That's also one of the reasons why I told the story to a group of people earlier today. That it's the story of the, uh, the elephant. This is a natural story told by the Buddha of an elephant uh, who started to become cranky. It's a royal elephant. You can imagine in those days that an elephant was the best form of transport for a king in the jungles. First of all, you were high up, so safe from snakes and other things. And the elephant was strong enough to be able to take you wherever you wanted to go. So that's one of the reasons why in those early days the elephant was a much better form of transport in the jungles than, say, a horse. So anyway, the royal elephant started to get cranky, started to squirt water at the king or poo in front of the uh, the trainer, and they wondered why. I think those of you who are Sinhalese just know 
they have the elephants over in Sri Lanka, they put the Buddha's relics on top of the elephant and they do a procession once a year. And those elephants, like, they are treated so well and they are revered. So anyway, this was a royal elephant, but he got cranky, no one knew why. They eventually found out why, he wasn't sick or anything. They just found at the back of the elephant store where the elephant was asleep at night, there's a group of burglars, thieves, bandits, would meet there every evening to discuss what they were going to do the next day. And even though the elephant could not understand human language, could actually understand the vibes, the bad vibes of these thieves. And because of that, the elephant became a bad elephant. That's all. Well, that's true, I can understand that. So, they had all the bad people arrested and they got the monks and the nuns to do chanting, meditate, talk about Dhamma every evening in behind the elephant store. And after a few days, the elephant became a really good elephant. Even though the elephant couldn't understand what was being said, just it felt good. And you know that's one of the reasons why that when any, any one of you gets cranky, you send them to the monastery or to a nunnery. You go and visit there for a few days. How many of you stayed at Bodhinyana Monastery for a few days? How many of you stayed at Dhammasara? So you go and stay there whenever you're cranky. <laughs> and does it work? Do the husbands say they come home much nicer wives? Is that true? You're say yes. <laughs> so it's true because they're associated with good people, with kind people, with gentle people. And just that association just makes you feel much better. Just like coming to uh, Dhammaloka on a Friday evening. Even if you don't understand a word of what's being said. Nevertheless, because you come here, you get some of the beautiful, good, kind, peaceful, nice energy. We you know the trouble with that story. If we get too many cranky people come to Bodhinyana Monastery, <laughs> then the monks become cranky. <laughs> <laughs> it works both ways, as you associate with. But nevertheless, it does actually work, and that's one of the reasons why you can understand as if there are any bad spirits or ghosts or whatever, just the kindness. Eventually the ghosts pick up on that. And they get conditioned, brainwashed if you like, and become better beings and cannot stay there any longer. So sometimes that's what happens. But you don't have to worry too much about spirits and ghosts. There was, I'll just check and make sure they're not here this evening, there's a couple. And they found out that, what they did actually, what happened, when they brought a new house, it was over in, uh, not uh, somebody who lived there before, in Dianella. They found out the previous owner of that house, moving their furniture out of the house, they'd had a heart attack in front of the door. And that's where they died. Of course, the real estate agents don't ever tell you that. But nevertheless, that once they moved in there, quite often their doorbell would go off. And so they thought, just kids playing. 
But once the doorbell went off and they were right next to the door, so they opened the door immediately. There's no way that any kid could have pressed that doorbell and run away and hid. So then they realized it was a ghost. They asked the real estate agent and said, yeah, a person died in front of the house. So they were very smart. So that was easy to solve. They'll just disconnect the, the doorbell, take the battery out. Because how can you ring a doorbell when there's no electric supply? I don't know how you do it, but ghosts find an answer. Because that doorbell can still go off without any battery or any electric supply. True, they said. But then it's also the trouble was that sometimes they'd be watching the TV, watching their favorite program, and the channel would switch. And they'd switch it back again. It would switch back to the, the program which they didn't like. And they found out that those were the programs the ghost liked. This is no joke, it's real. So they had to find a solution. How could they watch what they wanted to watch on their TV without the ghost interrupting them? Very simple answer. They bought a second TV. <laughs> one TV was for them, the other one was for the ghosts. <laughs> the ghosts could watch whatever they wanted. <laughs> and they would watch the other thing. But really, are ghosts really bad news? The last story I will say to show the good news of, of ghosts was what we call the tsunami ghost. <laughs> this happened in Thailand. True story again. After the tsunami, which you know, killed many people. There was a Thai lady in the town of Gribi in Thailand who had this dream of this uh, Caucasian girl, a young lady just with blonde hair, you know, but it was all tangled up, her face was all bloody, her clothes were ripped, and this a ghost in the dream she remembered it saying, help me, help me, I'm dead. If she heard that when she was alive, she would run for the door. But she was asleep at the time, it was a very clear dream. And so this ghost said, I was on PP Island, that's next to Phuket, when the big wave hit swept over the island, said, I'm, not, I'm killed, I'm dead. And said, my mobile phone, cell phone's in the bottom of the ocean. My mother's trying to ring me right now. Said, please help me. Said, this is my name. And I'm now being put, my corpse is being put in one of the temples on Phuket Island. Please tell my mother not to come yet because I don't want her to see me like this. Please cremate me. And then after the cremation, then ask my mother to come from London and to pick up my ashes. And then they gave a number to this lady in the dream. And after she received that number, that's when she woke up. 
She had perfect recall of the whole conversation. And she was one of these tired ladies who was married to a Westerner. And the Westerner, who was English, realized that that number was a legitimate Thai, a legitimate London telephone number. So he told her husband, give her a call. And if you know what Thais are like, no way, you call. <laughs> Thais are very scared of ghosts. They shouldn't be. When you find out this story had a very happy ending. So, <laughs> the husband rang. Somebody answered the, the opposite. And it was true, it was this lady's mother. And this lady's mother, this English woman's mother said, I felt she died. She said, I was, had a kind of feeling that she was on PPR and there were so many fatalities there. Yeah, that's probably what happened. So she said, go ahead, find the body, cremate it and let me know. And that's what they did. The following morning they drove to Phuket, a couple of hours, and they found the body exactly as she'd seen it in a dream. And because there was such chaos at that time, they were very easy to get permission to cremate it straight away. And then eventually the mother came from London, picked up the ashes, cried, and went home. But of course, that's an ordinary story. What happened next? When they got home to the town of Gubi, to their house, and the first night back when she slept, she had another dream. This time she dreamt of the same woman, she could recognize her. But she said it was like she'd been to a spa. Her hair was perfect. Her complexion was pure, no gashes, no blood. And she was wearing a nice, beautiful dress. And this person came to her and said, thank you. Look what you've done for me, thank you so much. The ghost, now a sort of happy spirit, had just come to say thank you. He said, I don't know how to repay you, but here's some more numbers. <laughs> and she remembered them all. And it wasn't a phone number. What do you reckon it was? Yeah, <laughs> they want a fortune. So, the meaning of that story, if ever you do encounter a ghost, <laughs> do not run away yet. <laughs> Ask for some numbers <laughs> and then run. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Okay. <laughs> you know, they were all true stories, which I said. Interesting. So anyway, got any questions? Any questions from... From any ghosts? Oh yeah? There's one question over there. Over there's got a... Okay, okay. Here we go. Okay. 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 Okay, just I've got a quick question here I can answer very quickly before the 
microphone guest, the young lady over there. Somebody from Singapore recently nimitus is the lights in the mind in which meditate that our experience show up as different colors on alternate days. Could you give some guidance? Thank you. The color is not important at all. Sometimes different moods, different uh, situations mean you interpret the nimitus like this or like that. This is the lights which appear in the mind during meditation. The most important thing is the stability of that light and also its brightness. That's all. Color is just irrelevant. Okay, so anyway, you got your question? Thank you. Hi, Ajahn Brown. Hi. Thank you for the talk. Um, I've had lots of ghosty experiences in my life and I've been on some ghost tours in Perth and in Coolgardie and some very, very dark energy, very unhappy spirits like Woodman Point being one of them, like lots of people died there and very stuck, they're very stuck, very unhappy. Um, so I think all those places could do with some chanting to yeah. sort of cheer them up a bit. So, you know, very, really awful. You can just feel they're yeah. stuck and my friend and I were like, they need some help. They're yeah. really, we, we've even had some in Kulgadi, they were throwing uh, pebbles and, okay. and some in um, Fairbridge, really, really unhappy. So okay. really dark places, yeah, just really unhappy there. If ever that happens, and if you can get someone who knows how to meditate, just make your mind very peaceful. You're very, very safe, don't be, need to be afraid. Be feel very safe, be kind and just you know, share the merits with everybody. Sometimes it takes a while for those beings to trust you, to trust that you know, you're, you're a friend. They can't harm you. They do need a lot of kindness. And that does allow them to get reborn in a much better place. So that's actually, what you say is totally true. We were very much questioning, like, how can they be helped? How can they just be stuck here? And you could just, because yeah. I can feel them and things like that. That they're yeah. so unhappy here. They but don't know no what to do. No one's ha helping them. Yeah, anyone who goes there usually gets afraid, and yeah. that doesn't help anybody. So just be kind, and just even talk, saying, "Dear beings, so that I'm not here to harm you." And uh, what I want you to do is sometimes remember some of the good things you've done in your life and the beautiful things and that feeling of kindness and when they can feel some love rather than fear then that will sometimes be enough to get them to let go of that place and get reborn in a beautiful place. Ajahn Brahm, can I have just two quick questions? No, I'll just do these ones first okay. and then you afterwards, yeah. One from Korea. I am surrounded by fault finders. I know I'm also finding fault with the fault finders. <laughs> but it's hard for me not to find faults when everyone else does. How can I be peaceful? It's sometimes wherever you go in the world, there's always sometimes people who find faults. But sometimes just to be able to smile and be kind, sometimes you can do something much better than being just another fault finder. It's not that hard to do. Just be kind and realize, yeah, there are faults in this world. There's also a lot of beauty in this world. There's not just the two bad bricks. There's 998 gorgeous bricks. 
just from France, dear Ajahn Brahm, someone I love very much is sick and having trouble recovering. I have trouble letting go and not constantly hovering above her with love and care. How can I let go? I'm very scared that if I let go, she will relapse or die. You know, sometimes, I often say one of the greatest acts of love is to let somebody go, someone you love very, very much. You free her, it's only letting go for a while. You know, until uh, you meet again in another life. And we have to let go. We've got no choice there. And so when we get used to that, we enjoy each other's company. And then when the talk is over, you go home, I go another way, and we meet each other another time. That's actually not asking from life something it can never give you. Another one from South Korea. Dear Ajahn Brahm, thank you always. How should I treat people who continue to behave badly by exploiting my kindness and generosity? One thing you can do is the old Chinese saying, to love the tiger but at a distance. In other words, to have some separation from the people who are uh, exploiting your kindness and generosity, they're behaving badly. And remember to also share that kindness to yourself by protecting yourself. So, a lot of time our problem is with family. If your family are just wasting money, and then you think if you have some, you've got to give some to them, out of kindness and out of love. But sometimes there is that tough love idea. Sorry, I've given you plenty of money. I can't do any more right now. Or you do some sort of deals. So, I can give you some money as long as you go to some counsellor for the problems which you are exhibiting. So sometimes the kindness is not just giving people what they ask for, but finding out what they really need and giving that. And this peace card. Dear Ajahn, please tell us how did you manage to let go of your job, family responsibilities and possessions and move to time to practice? What was the turning point that made you sure about this? I wasn't sure about that when I went to Thailand. I told all my friends, I'll see you back in about a couple of years. Even the, I had a job as a school teacher and the, the, the teacher said, I will keep your job open for you when you come back in a couple of years. Of course, I never did come back because what happened, you felt that that was you know, the life you always wanted to live. It was not a hard at all letting go of everything. I enjoyed the freedom of being a monk and having no responsibilities. Responsibilities, but different responsibilities. Responsibilities to be peaceful, to understand your mind, to keep your body healthy, and to be of service to others. That was my responsibility. It was the easiest thing in the world for me, honestly. To go there first of all. One of the nicest things about the Thai tradition was that you know, the ordinations were always just like temporary. If you want to just be a monk for just a few days or a few weeks or a few years, it's totally up to you. If you're enjoying it, carry on. If you didn't enjoy it, leave. And to this day, I, I tell the other monks, if you're not enjoying yourself, you're not finding it useful, then don't stay as an unhappy monk. Just, you know, just disrobe if you need to. You know, all these years, you know, there's no, hardly anyone has disrobed. And that's a big problem for me. 
<laughs> no, I'm not looking at anybody. <laughs> because it's hard to find places to, to, to give them uh, huts and stuff. But for me it was really easy. And I can understand if somebody really wants to do that role. It's one of the most beautiful professions in the world. I don't know how many people. Where's the... Oh no, Elle's not here. Is Elle here today? No, she's here early. I think she's going to look after her kids. Sometimes people send me these emails, or even better than that, just a couple of years ago, that incident when I was at Paddington Station in London, just going from the underground to one of the mainline um, trains to go and give a talk in Oxford. And as I was just walking, minding my own business, this lady came running towards me. She was an Afro-English lady, maybe about 21, 22, 23. Are you Ajahn? No, she didn't say that. She said, are you the YouTube monk? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call me, YouTube monk. And I said, yeah, well, I, I have been on YouTube. He said, are you Ajahn Brahm? I said, yeah, that's it. That's me. So said, what are you doing in Paddington Station? You're supposed to be in Australia. I was just giving a talk this evening. And she said, there's the wonderful things, true honesty. She said, you saved my life. How did I do that? I never met you before. And she'd gone through one of these separations with her partner. And it was just really hard for her. And she didn't have any, well she had psychologists, social, uh, social workers and stuff to try and help her, and all her friends, and nothing was working. She said she was actually suicidal. And just out of desperation, she just got on YouTube, just checking out something or other, and she heard one of my talks on YouTube, and it did the trick for her. After listening to one, she listened to another one, another one, another one. She binged on my talks. But it worked for her, and it saved her life. And she was honest about that. And imagine that happens to you. Someone you, you know, in a place you don't usually go, over to UK, and, and then someone you've never seen before in your life comes up to you and says with total honesty, YouTube monk, you saved my life. Job satisfaction is huge <laughs> as a monk or not. Just getting one of those, that would actually just make your life worthwhile. You get loads of those. That's really wonderful when those things happen. Even just one of those other similar experiences. Some years ago, they gave me this, that's right, the Order of Australia medal. They had to go to government house over there. Kim Beasley was the governor then, uh, to get this award. And I often wondered, should I be going to this, a monk getting awards? You just do this for no, you don't expect anything back in return. And, but the best part of that ceremony was, I don't know actually who they actually were, I think they were working in Government House. There's these two or three ladies, they came up to me and said, you're the only person who deserves this award. Because they too had gone through a terrible divorce or separation, they said, you saved our life too. And those words meant far more than a little medal which you got 
from the governor. And so I said, okay, yeah, it's worthwhile coming to get that. That is real job satisfaction. Anyway, Eddie, sorry for keeping you quiet. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I've got two questions, quick questions. One on ghosts, the other one on devas, you know. Yeah. See, my understanding is, you know, like this, um, if a person is a virtuous person, you know, a good person, high up person, this ghost dare not come near the virtuous person, you know, because they are scared of good things, you know, because they are on the lower realm. But on, on the other hand, if the person is a low person, you know, all these bad things you got thing, sing down the thing, the, this ghost they can come, you know, to, yeah, sometimes. to disturb them or what? Do you believe in spirit disturbance? Not really spirit disturbance, but I do know that this is basically personal experience that ghosts are terrified of good monks. Ah, yeah, I understand. I understand it, yeah, I agree I think I've t told this experience before. Just, you know, over in Wat Nana Chart, which is the cremation ground. And just going wandering in there one evening and seeing all these ghosts. And they're just out of kindness walking up to them. And they all started running away. Ah! You can see us! Yeah, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> so sometimes you notice how terrified ghosts are of really good people. The goodness is their power and their purity. And, but s sick people, I don't know. It's, if the people are very sickly or weak or something, sometimes then so spirits can ca get in. Not sick, they are low. No? They are like maybe murderers or doing something oh, bad no. thing, things M like that. Murderers, like murderers can do some wonderful good things. And Gulimala became a fully enlightened being. Mm. So anyway, what's the second question? Okay. Second question, devas, you know. Oh, yeah. It is said that devas, the devas, they congregate in, in, in temples, trees, in you know, oh, yeah. six, seven, eight realms, yeah. They can come to eight uh, yeah. Buddhist practitioners, you know. Yeah, that's true. What, what do you think of that? That's true, that's a real thing. Uh, I wish I could tell the story. No, I can't. I'm going to go on a bit. Five minutes this story. It's one of the most favourite ones. I know Prem loves this story whenever he hears it. Totally true. About this American, he was working and uh, was it um, Peace Corps? Two years in Thailand, Peace Corps, and after two years there, he decided he might as well try and become a monk, see what it's like. And so he didn't know what to do. So somebody told him, outside Wat Bawan, in the middle of Bangkok, that's the place to go. So he went there really early in the morning, too early, the place was all locked up, with some food to give the food as alms food to one of these monks, and asked to become a monk. No one was around, didn't know what to do, everything was locked up. And then this, this Thai man came to see him, asked him, what did you want? He said, well, I want to become a monk, but you know, this place is all locked up. And the Thai man said, you've come too early. He said, never mind, I can let you inside and show you around. So this Thai man opened up this iron gate and took him inside the main temple where the ordinations happened. 
and pointed out all the various uh, murals on the wall and gave him so much information about these murals. And the time went past so quickly. And afterwards, he said, well, the monks are going to come out now, so you go unto that gate over there, wait for a little while, and when this old monk comes out, then ask him. So I'll lock up. And that's what this uh, young man did. And when the monk came out, he asked him, can I become a monk? Okay, just wait here. When I come back, we'll take you inside to get you trained to do the ordination ceremony. When they're doing the ordination ceremony, or before then, there's so much to learn. And this poor American monk, he couldn't understand the Thai monk who was assigned to train him. So he asked, haven't you got anybody here who could speak better English? And he said, this is the best one we have. What about that temple attendant I saw on the first day? The one who opened the door and took me into the main hall and explained everything to me. There is no such temple attendant. And no one will be entrusted with the keys to what is called the royal gate. These are the places where the kings and queens of Thailand do their ceremonies, where they do their temporary ordinations. And I've known that. Even I can't walk through that gate. That's only royalty's gate. And no one has the key except a couple of senior monks. And so they took him to see the head monk there. At that time was Somdet Yana Sangwon. And the Somdet was hearing this story and realized this was honest. So he stopped him and said, just hold on a moment, and got the secretary to write it all down. It's in the, the history books of that temple. And even the Somdet, the old, oldest monk in the monastery, didn't know the story of all those murals. And of course, then they asked him, what did he look like, that Thai man who spoke perfect English? And he said, well, I don't know. They kind of all looked the same. <laughs> you know, if you, you've been in that country and you know people, you can understand who's who. They said, well, what did he look like? Describe him. And he said, well, I don't know. And he was scratching his head and he looked up. And he said, it's him. There's a portrait of this guy on the, on the wall, King Rama IV, who died maybe 120 years earlier, the main sponsor of that temple. That's why he had the key. He was royalty, he could go in there. It's why he knew about all those mules because he was there when they were painted. And that's a weird story. That was a, a royalty who'd helped a young man ordain as a monk. And that's in the, in the history books. And it's, I remember just, <laughs> I remember just, just giving that story at the Thai Embassy in Singapore many years ago. And the Thai High Commissioner or Ambassador, whatever it's called, he stood up and said, I just want to let you know, Ajahn Brahm, that I am on the, the Board of Trustees of Wat Bawad. I've seen that story, it's totally true. 
just like in the old days, those people who are Buddhists here, you know, know that heavenly beings would sometimes help people doing good things. I believe that. Ajahn Brahm, do you believe that there are devas here? Here, yeah, I've got experience. Can I quickly quick share? Quite likely, and I get yeah. very upset if we keep going for too long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to share a quick experience. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure there are. Okay, yeah. There was just a few years ago, you know, I had some problem. So I came here, you know, yeah. to pray the Buddha and the Nevas for help, you know. So the, so the next morning in my house, I woke up with the sound of uh, 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 you know, the kukubara, cuckoo? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was 7 o'clock in the morning, he was jumping on fence, he says, Eddie Kukuku, Eddie Kukuku. It was just like normal, normal is a cuckoo, but it's a cuckoo, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I woke up this thing, mm, calling me a thing, no. so I didn't bother. So the next morning, the same thing happened at the same time. No. So this morning, then I got up this thing, then I went, went around, oh, there's a pair of them, no. Eddie Kukuku, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the, but my problem just, after just, I don't know, it just went off, you know? Yeah. And then a few days later, I came here to, to, to say, here, here, yeah. kneel down, like a thank you, anything. And then the, the, the bird from here, Eddie Kukuku again. Okay. So I know, oh, there's a Deva bird helping. It's no, a true, no. true story, you know? <laughs> my, 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 my problem just went off. A good accident. Yeah, no, there are heavenly beings. Yeah, heavenly beings. But they will only help out if your problem is an important one and you're a good person. So you can't rely upon them, and you think, oh, no, I need a job, oh, no, or I just, you know, I haven't got married yet, I need someone nice <laughs> to spend my life with. No, they won't help with those things. Or oh, I need a lottery number, forget it. Okay, anyway, if you have any more questions or ghost stories or stuff, you can please line up here afterwards, but I think I better bow now and just uh, uh, finish off the formal part of this evening.